The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Lori Rudiman. Welcome to Corporate Drinker, a punk rock HR production. In each episode, Corporate Drinker explores the intricate ties between work culture and alcohol. Now, there's no judgment here. The podcast tells stories of regular people like you and me who may have complicated relationships with drinking. I'll talk to leadership gurus, therapists, addiction specialists, and even HR and marketing professionals who have hot takes on how and why alcohol and work have become so interconnected. And of course, I'll speak to brilliant people with big ideas on cultivating genuine cultures of inclusion and belonging so leaders and employees can enhance their work environment and reduce unnecessary conflict with or without alcohol. On today's episode, I'm chatting with Dr. Scott Kellogg. He's a clinical psychologist and addiction expert who has an interesting take on the world of addiction, identity, and the personal management of our lives. I found this conversation to be fascinating. I found this conversation to be fascinating because we really bring in some theories of psychology into the practical management of how we meet people where they are in all stages of addiction. So if you're looking for something a little headier, a little more esoteric, but also a little bit more helpful than what you get from normal conversations about alcohol use disorder, we'll sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dr. Scott Kellogg. I'm Scott Kellogg, and I'm a clinical psychologist. I live in New York City. I'm currently the president, president of the Division on Addictions of the New York State Psychological Association. I first, so in when I, I started graduate school in the mid 1980s, and at the time I was working with homeless people in New York City. And at that time, the narrative was, and I think we all accepted then, and, and homelessness was a crisis. It wasn't like a lifestyle, it was a crisis. You know, it was like this was going to go away, but it was seen as an economic, because there, there have been changes in the tax laws in New York City which suddenly made it worthwhile to tear down, you know, kind of poor buildings and build middle-class, upper-class housing. And that had not been there before. It's this, this unleashed, which meant all these people who were kind of marginal suddenly had no place to live. It was, it was a sudden flooding. And it was seen as an economic, you know, wealthy, rich versus poor. But, you know, as you worked in that field, you began to see it was more there were more dimensions to that that was true for sure but also it's funny just like playing stuff out in california i think at the moment again for that matter but you know that there was mental illness problems and there's a lot of addiction and um it became kind of a rule of thumb back then that you know if somebody was homeless for more than six months they probably had a problem other than homelessness they probably had an addiction that was kind of you know, I don't know if it's true but that was kind of an idea that people so I was doing this work, and I was in school one day, and I saw an advertisement on the uh, wall that said, um, for, for a methadone program, and said, we're looking for people to come, we'll train them to be drug counselors, whatever, uh, got me an internship, paid internship, and you become a counselor, right? So I thought, well, I'm, you know, this, I'm learning to be a psychotherapist, but 
this could be great. You know, I could learn something. I get trained. I get. I need some money to live. And oh my God, you're leaning into your side hustle. Right. So, <laughs> you know, so we'll do this. So I go down there, interview for the job, get a half-time job because I got to go to school and do stuff. And the first day I go there, they say, Scott, we've decided to cancel the training program. Here are your cases. Good luck. Oh my God, no. <laughs> yeah. And it was, I was in Chinatown. It was where it was, so there, everybody's using opiates because methadone, but it's crack cocaine meets HIV, heroin addiction, Wild West. It was the, it was, you know, and I was really like thrown into it. Do you have a mentor or someone who kind of held your, ha- held I, your I, hand? I, no. I mean, I, I, I had what I would really call administrative supervisors. Is your paperwork done? You know, that sort of stuff. But I didn't really have a teacher, nice people, but no, you know, but I was like, I got to figure this thing out. So in 1989, I discovered the work of Alan Marlat, who is for psychologists. He is, he is the great genius of addiction psychology. He, everybody builds on him and his, so there's a, there's a saying in A that, you know, addiction is cunning, baffling, and mysterious. The famous, alcoholism is a famous phrase, right? But what Marlette did, so the other thing was like, you get a person in treatment and they they go through treatment, uh, they're not drinking, right? And they're not using drugs. Oh, it's a great thing. We're all celebrating, we're all very happy. But three months later, we're declining. They go, oh, they screwed up again. Or the therapist goes, you know, I guess I'm just a failure. I mean, I don't know. I tried to treat this guy. So everything's going to be fine. Now they fall back, blah, 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 right? Marlette, in his genius of Marlette, says, Let's look at what happens at that three-month period. What is going on that everybody, and it's, it's, the number is like 60, 70% go, go back, right? Let us look at that. And he said, what happens is not cunning, baffling, and mysterious. It's actually quite predictable. They're, the patterns are very real and very clear. And that, you know, and it's, you know, high-risk situations, interpersonal stress, internal voices, you know, there are a whole series of things that we can look at these things. They're predictable. We can train people, see the signals. We can train them if they fall back, how to get back on the thing. So this was, you know, now this is like mainstream, but at the time this was absolutely revolutionary. And also, and this is a big battle, in the field, it was a big battle field treatment. Are people powerless over their addictions or are people actually capable of getting addictions under, under control and, and directing their lives? I'm in the that camp, and they're basically two main paradigms, and I'm going to give you the, the other one, which is not the 12-step paradigm, but the empowerment paradigm. We train people, they go, and, and, and he, kind of, he talks about falling forward was a phrase he used, people use it now. And he goes, like, like learning to play the piano. When you learn to play the piano or ice skate, you fall a lot, right? But over time, you get better and better. So each time you screw up, you learn something. So this iterative process, you can get better and better at getting your, your drug use out, under control. Wait, I want to interrupt because there's such a fear of falling, especially around addiction. It's like the stakes are so high and even one slip up will send you down this deep descending spiral and you'll be further than you were before, further down. Rock bottom will be a new low. Is that is that not true always? I hope not. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't think it is, but like I hear that, you know, especially from that AA camp around complete and total abstinence, right? Well, Marlatt's model can be used for complete and total abstinence. It can also be used for moderation, but whatever it is, the odds are likely that you are going to go back to use. 
So would it be great if people never used again? Certainly. But is that likely to happen? No. And one thing he does, which he called the absence violation effect, which is very another very, this guy's just genius, brilliant, was that some people will use once and then they kind of go, well, I may as well just keep going. He goes, don't do that. Stop, get help, pull out of it. Because, you know, it, it, it's because um, when you have a binary kind of thing of like either I'm absent or I've completely gone back. Because people in AA who've been, you know, have been done amazing recovery for like 10 years have a slip. They, they, they're out for, they may die. They come, they're ashamed to go back, right? So this model is like, no, this is, this is the humanistic experience. Now, one of the criticisms is if you do this, you're giving people permission, so to speak, to use. Well, first of all, it's their lives, and nobody gives permission to anybody to use. It's their decision, and you know, it's their choice. So that idea of and uh, and even AA is, is very smart. They go, you know, people don't, people using drugs don't like to be told what to do. So, you know, they don't like that's not very popular. So this was this was a profoundly humanistic sort of revolution in addiction treatment that became and then my dissertation, I looked at how do people recover, kind of really recover. So that's relapse prevention. And I basing on the work of other people, I, I said I felt that identity transformation was the core process of healing. And I looked at identity studied identity and different methods of recovery people were successful made certain identity changes people who were not successful didn't make very good identity changes so wait and what's an identity change so i know kind of my model now i've sort of two identity change two identity theories here one is as just just working with a patient on this a few minutes ago um initially with your corporate friends or whatever they're going to like, I'm going to try to stop drinking. That's probably what most of them are doing. Right. And maybe that works. And maybe that doesn't work. And maybe that probably doesn't work. Right. Correct. And, yeah. And we, and right now we have an epidemic of women drinking wine. You probably know that. Um, I do. I do. Yeah. Fastest growing group in America for alcohol. But at some point after that experiment doesn't work and it usually doesn't work because there's a real problem. You, you have to say, I need to claim an identity either as a real moderating drinker or drug user or as a person who doesn't, is in recovery. I don't use substances, or I use substances in a moderate way. And moderating means very specific guidelines. What are you using? When are you using? How often? What's your method? And any violation of that model is a serious thing. It's it's you know it's not like, yeah, I'm going to try and drink. That's not moderation. It's planned and structured, and you have to abide by that. And some people say, yeah, I, I can still get the pleasure I love from alcohol, and it works. Other people go, I hate this. It's driving me crazy. I'd rather not drink, right? Yeah, yeah, of course. But, or but that or that guideline triggers them to drink even more. I can see that happening. Because I do have friends who are like, I'm only going to drink on the weekends, or I'm only going to drink on a Tuesday. And immediately, you can see that that almost triggers something and then makes them antsy. Well, yeah, we have different parts. This is another part of my model here, but they, you know, so another part is getting, is, but, but they have to really work this stuff through. And that's why it's kind of a more formal process of really engaging. It's not like, yeah, I'm not, you know, it's like, that's not really moderation. You've made a decision. Like you make a decision to become a vegetarian or whatever, a vegan, or you make a, you know, 
or a flexitarian, someone who eats meat, but on a limited scale or a pescatarian, right? You've got parameters, you've got a system at play. I see that. All right. So that's one model. Yeah. So that's, um, so that's the first level of, uh, and that's a formal decision. Most of your friends are probably not making formal decisions. No, they're not. They're right? just bargaining. Yeah. Yeah. And for some that will be successful. The, the long-term recovery and, um, is that you you need to develop you develop or claim or own or reclaim identities that directly conflict with the use of substances. So that is, I'm going to be a better mother. That doesn't work with being with drinking alcohol. Um, or I'm, I want you know I, I'm going to become become a runner. That doesn't work with you know it conflicts with heavy use of cocaine. But whatever it is, you know, and, and you. Claim this these identities that are important to you, and they're and they con conflict with a, a lifestyle based on drugs because drugs are also an identity. People drink with other people. They use drugs. You know, it's changing now a little bit with all, but there's still very social aspects to a lot of drug use. I leave these people behind. I no longer see them. I end my relationships. I move. The life change. AA is a great way. It creates a whole new identity, a recovery identity. Smart recovery can do the same thing. Moderation management could do one around moderation, but going to church or religious work, spiritual work, getting heavily into yoga. These aren't guarantees because some people do the stuff and they also, but ultimately there's going to be a conflict. And if you don't, if you're not able to create this other identity, you fundamentally will not succeed in your recovery. And there's been a lot of study on, on natural recovery. Actually, most people recover without any treatment at all. We never see them. And we've studied them also, and they basically use identity as their vehicle. You know, they often churches or an opportunity, or they fall in love. Woman, woman can save a man's life. It doesn't always work. You know, many women who get pregnant um, will stop using while they're pregnant. They don't always. They may go back, but often there's an identity conflict there. That's right. That's so right. It's a very powerful lens for understanding. Not that any of it's easy, but at least it's a map for what to do. Yeah, that, that is so fascinating to me because in my work in human resources, I don't focus on fixing work. I focus on helping people almost reclaim an identity. And I didn't quite understand that I was doing this, but really think about themselves as who they are, what they want to accomplish in the world, what their values are, what gives them meaning, what gives them purpose. And you live this amazing life and you bring that good stuff to your job. It's an outside in approach when it comes to fixing work. And it sounds like we're um, on a similar path, but in order to claim an identity when you're mired in addiction, you have to have hope. You have to believe in the possibility that you could be a mother, you could be a runner, you could be whatever it is you want to be. And I would imagine that many people are struggling to see themselves outside of their addictions or at least negative self-talk. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about that? So what's one other thing? When people get really addicted, the number of identities they have shrinks. So it's also expansion of the number of identities that's also protective. So it's not just, it's not just, it's both claiming ones that contradict addiction. It's also expanding your repertoire of identities. When you're really like, you know, I mean, like this, when I work with very, you know, very tragic sort of hardcore street drug using people, you know, everybody they knew was using drugs. All they basically ever talked about was using drugs. I mean, the life had shrunk into this, such, you know, like a black hole of beingness to like nothing else, you know? And recovery is like this expands and like, you know, now I'm interested in politics or, I, or I'm interested in stamp collecting or, you know, I I want to do ballet or you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, 
but we see this kind of shrinking and growing. You know, I think now the question you just asked me was well. The question is how do you how do you make that leap from because people who are mired in corporate drinking really see themselves as a project manager who's stuck in a dead end job or in a toxic like all they think about is work 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 and it's at least in these situations that I'm thinking of driving them to drink. How do you how do you get someone to even believe that they have the ability to have multifaceted identities? So at the heart of any problematic relationship with substances is always ambivalence, right? And this is what we we play relentlessly. There's a part that wants to use, and there's a part that's suffering, and we keep have to, and you have to keep throwing them against each other in the session. So I might say, if, if you were a patient, I might say to you, "It's all right. Now you've been nodding your head about all these good things I'm saying to you, but I want you to move over to that chair over, and I want you to speak to the part that says, Dr. Kelly, I don't believe anything you're saying. I want to get high. You don't understand my stress. You don't understand my pain. You don't understand my life." I hate this fucking stuff and I want, excuse my French, and I want to, I want to drink or I want to smoke or I want to do this. And then I go back to this side and this part say, you are freaking me out. I'm going to lose everything because of you. And we want to create a civil war within the person. Well, it contains civil war, <laughs> a civil civil war, right? Or, or can it be disruptive? It can be disruptive in the session. I mean, it's like because one, both sides are quite frightened, really. One side is, is fearful because it uses pain at the heart of the drug use. How can how can I live? I'm so depressed. Or you didn't know you're running ghosts of traumas. You don't know what's going on. You, know, you have no idea how much pain is in me. You're taking away my medicine. Right? And the other part's going, I can see where this is going. My life, I'm going to lose everything, the family, the kids, the house, everything because of this. And also, I was not put in this world to be this person. This is not my story. I refuse to accept this my story. This can't be my truth. So that's you want. And and the more intensity you get, the more you get to a creative possibility. And And so what are the possibilities? You know, you have someone who's grappling with both sides of the equation. Where does that go? All right, so you know, I, I decided the equation. I have somebody in the middle, the, what I call the leader in the middle, is going to figure this out, right? So we have you set me up like a softball. You know, uh, I'm doing my job right. <laughs> right. So there are basically six ways you could approach this patient, right? And um, nice chapter for your book, right? Six yeah, things. I love it. There you go. Um, it's it's technically your work, so it's not going to be in my book like that. <laughs> but it's you know, it's like. Uh, and we do different things. People we do multiple steps, probably. But the first one is just like, well, just just talk about it. Just keep coming back and talking. We don't have to do anything. Just keep talking. Come in here and talk, and let's maybe let these sides play it out. And just, you know, but engage in the conversation. Very low. You probably know stages of change. You probably have come across that, right? So, you know, maybe it's a contemplation model or even a pre. You know, well, these people are in conflict. Those would probably be having the conversation, right? So, so just keep meeting and talking. You know, and and. You know, it's a thing, you know, there's a whole thing in harm reduction dogma about having no agenda, but that's never true. We always have an agenda for patients. We be, we're healers. We're we get better. But you can act like you don't have an agenda. That's useful. Like, all right, you know, just here to talk and we keep talking. Maybe something good will happen. We're, we're building a relationship and relationship is the foundation of, of therapy. You probably the same in HR. If you have a good relationship, things can happen. If you don't, but nothing's going to I mean, happen. Relationships are the foundation of life. So, yeah, I mean, for sure. The next one would be, let's just monitor your use. Let's just keep track. You know, there are apps, or you just use a piece of paper, or whatever you want to do. You make a very low low threshold. 
some of the apps are fun. You know, just monitor how much you're using when you used, you know, but make it really light, not detailed, not onerous. And we know from behavioral research that monitoring itself tends to reduce use. Right? But even if it doesn't, like, oh, so, and, and take it apart. So use a Thursday, where were you? Microanalysis, who were you with? You know, um, is it always the same pattern? If they're different drugs, actually, I use this drugs with these people, this one with this person, I use this by myself, you, know, you get a whole, there's a kind of a funny thing I've seen with some people, like if they have like guys, like if they have like six drinks or eight drinks, then they use cocaine. But not, but not if they have four drinks. Right, right. <laughs> One guy would like, I have, I have like eight drinks, and then I smoke a cigarette, which I don't usually smoke, and then I like what? <laughs> then I it's cocaine. Cigarette becomes the gateway drug to go. Yeah, you know. I mean, that's interesting compulsions right there. It's like a layered in, in interesting ways. When you talked about like breaking down where they've been, where they're using, where they're drinking, it almost gave me a mental map that you can start to play with. Like if you are at this bar at this time of day, you, you know, there's going to be trouble, right? So you can start to, I guess, grow and modify your behavior at least. Uh, you're getting a little bit ahead of me. But oh, first, sorry. Yeah, please. I don't mean to. Yeah. No, no, I mean, so when you create a plan, then you're going to use that information to figure out the plan. But yeah. right now, you know, like, or, the next one for me is if a person's like drinking like 35 drinks a week or something like that, I'd say, I want to set a number that's very, very high like 35 drinks a week, which is you know <laughs> ridiculous. And I want us to agree to that number. So that, so, you, you know, easy, I want success. Everything's got to be really, really easy to accomplish. But if you go over 35 drinks, that is a big deal. And uh, Marlad in his book quotes a, 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 a Zen saying, which is to keep the sheep happy, have a big field. That was great. So I use that idea, right? So we want to, yeah, you can do all this stuff, but there is going to be a line somewhere. And because there's no line for people, right? There's no, there's no boundary on the drinking. So now we're creating a boundary. But well, a and the bar is low, so people can meet that. I see that. Yeah. And also, and if they can't meet it, then that's also, you get a lot of information about what's going on there. Whatever. So the next thing would be, now let's move to more formally to harm reduction as harm reduction which is my friend Andrew Tcharsky, you should talk to him, by the way, um, is he would say, ideal use plan. How do we maximize the benefits and minimize the risks? So you know, it's also called substance management. So I'm, uh, you know, part of me wants to use and part of me is worried about the use. Okay, so let's look at what drugs you're using. Do you want to change the amount of the drugs? Do you want to change the combination of the drugs? Do you want to change which drugs you're using? Where are you using it? By yourself, with other people? You know, and now with all these overdoses, a lot of people are using by themselves, trying to get them actually used with other people because by themselves is very risky. Um, and you're using, you know, seven days a week. Can we move to six days a week? Would that be better? You know, so you're just you're changing the pattern in very kind of big. But but the person decides everything. It's it's all there because you're, again, you're playing. There's a part that's unhappy with their drug use. You always have to go to that part. You always have to play this core battle between. I love this. I want, I need this stuff. I don't love it necessarily. Some of them say I hate it, but I need it and I want it. And the goes, I'm frightened. I want something different. You always go back to that. Some people are, some people in treatment are afraid to let the parts speak that wants the drugs. In the old days, that was forbidden, but now they're getting, people are learning that it's very important that part gets into the room. You know, it has to be a central chair as a central player. The next level would be moderation. 
this is what I'm talking about before, a real structured approach to use that you're agreeing to. And the last one would be just cessation. We're not, we're not going to use. So wait, so we've got multiple steps here. And this is there the work. I would say there's steps, more like options. Okay, options. I like it. Um, this sounds like a journey of a lifetime, right? And it sounds like you can make progress, but you can also have that progress interrupted, right? It's not linear, although these steps have been laid out linear in this converse, linear, linearly in this conversation. I would imagine this work could take years, could take decades, could take a lifetime, right? Well, two things. So, so for my personal goal, what I've written about is my goal is what I what I call like freedom or liberation. That is, I want people to not be addicted in their use. Addict, you know, addiction means slavery in the ancient in Latin or whatever. Addictus means a slave. So I want them to be not. So whatever they use, they're using what I call non-addictive use, which maybe is moderation, maybe it's a different pattern. Or the cessation. That's my goal for them. Is they're not, you know, they have they have the freedom to use or not use, whatever that means. Um, so I have, I do have a goal. Now, something I didn't tell you before. So all this is great, but but when something goes wrong, now we went back to back to Alan Marlat. What? So we set a goal, and you didn't it didn't work out. You weren't able to do it. So let's really take that apart, and then we find what I call the horizontal and the vertical. Right. So. This work is really based on horizontal and vertical work. Horizontal is managing substances, high-risk situations, dealing with triggers, dealing with cravings, dealing with urges, you know, patterns of use, really becoming a scientist about your use. The vertical is trauma and self-hatred. Depression, anxiety, pain that's driving it. And for many people, they'll say, I'm not, I'm not touching the substances until we deal with this, the pain, because that is my medicine. In the old days, we'd say, stop your drug use first, then we'll deal with your pain. Not considered to be that successful a strategy. I'm for the world of like, either we deal with them both, or maybe we deal with the, the pain first and try to keep you alive, and then we'll deal with your drugs later on. And that's been kind of the revolution of, um, you know, and, and people, people use drugs filled with self-hatred, filled with self-hatred. Self-hatred is a precursor and self-hatred as a result of their drug use. Well, I'm not surprised to hear about that, but so we've talked about kind of the horizontal management, which is a full-time job, right? I mean, this is really time-consuming. It's involved to be like, as you described it, a scientist of your own life, of your own behaviors, of your own habits, but then to do the deep work around your identity as it stands and why it stands today. And some people that would trigger them <laughs> into drinking, into using, into going back to the habits, to the habits that they're trying to avoid in the first place. So I'm just, I'm almost overwhelmed by the immense amount of work that it takes to, to live a life with integrity if you're suffering from addiction. I, I don't know. Does that make sense? Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think, I think it's less, I think it's more complicated in the, in the uh, ex explanation than in the reality. Because it, it's, what does triggering mean? Triggering means a part of me you got activated and my inner leader did not get it under control. Right, I got taken over by a part because you would Freud call the ego, I call the inner leader. That's the of all psychotherapy, whatever it is, that's the goal of all psychotherapy. Right. And we are all wrestling with our parts. And and none of us are I don't think any of us are in great control of our parts, but we kind of you know, we go, what I do, I can't believe I did that. You know, we're you know, we're all wrestling with that, but with addiction, it's more extreme, you know. And for some people, it's like, you know, when you deal with the pain, the drug just goes away. Some people, that's not going to be the case. So, you know, as one of our colleagues said, 
sometimes the drug use becomes, you know, unmoored from the pain. It started with the pain, but now it has a life of its own. Contingency management is creating, is giving positive reinforcements for people to, to change, either to not use substances or to change their pattern. So what do I like to do? So I set the goal, I set this big goal with the patient. So they get 35 drinks a week. I say, if you do, if you don't drink, if you drink 35 or less, I will take $10 off your fee. <laughs> All right. Okay. This is the single most powerful method for getting people to change their behavior. It is more powerful than anything else. There's thousands of studies. It is unbelievably effective. Nobody, it's better. There's so much opposition. So few people use this. I'm the only person I know who uses it in private practice. The VA is using it now with, with, in the, the VA system. It's been, but it is, it is so incredibly useful. Why? Why? I think, you know, Skinner in a very classic behavior say was a, you know, drugs are, are in Marla Willis is a drugs are reinforcer. We're now creating a counter reinforcer for change. So it's one reinforcer versus another, right? And people who are very poor, and many of them are, $10 is a lot of money. But I also think in my work, it also works on a relational and symbolic way, as well as the fact that everybody likes money. Everybody likes money. Money's money's powerful. You think you think wealthy people don't respond to ten bucks? They respond to ten. bucks. No, I believe that, and they're the most motivated to keep their money. That's how they stay wealthy. Yeah, it becomes like a game. It's like a victory. You can also do the other side, which I used to do. I do less now. It's kind of like, and if you go, if you do use more, I'm going to charge you twenty five bucks more. You know, um, kind of a, a downside, but I, I prefer not to do that. But I will if I if I feel like it's necessary. For someone out there who. Things have gotten a little bit worse for them during COVID, but they're still showing up to work. They're still, for all intents and purposes, doing what they need to get done. But they do have this deep despair or this deep sadness or just they're wrestling with trauma, right? And and these are the conversations that start to come out in the dark hours of conferences, you know, when you're sitting around with someone in Las Vegas right now. I mean, you start to hear their story and deeply problematic and filled with a lot of self-hate to your earlier point in the conversation. What what does a responsible colleague do with that? You know, you you hear your you hear your friend is suffering. Where do you go with that? Well, first thing to say, the job is the you know for most middle class people, I would say maybe class people, the job is the last thing to go. So yeah, and there was I remember the um, Partnership for Drug Free America, which is a controversial group. The they had an advertisement saying you know, like like the boss is the the boss is the greatest motivator to get get recovery. It's an advertisement campaign. But, you know, but, the boss yeah. is the greatest motivator to cause you <laughs> to have problems yeah. these days. And yeah. also, but they, people won't do it for their family, but they will do it for their job. They will actually get get help. What do you say? I, I guess I would say to someone, you know, it sounds like you are hurting a lot and you are in a lot of pain. And I would suggest that you get help for this pain as soon as possible. And I would suggest to go the pain route and not the drug route. I think people are, are you, know, you sound like you're depressed. You sound like the, the stuff is really bothering you. It sounds like you are really anxious. So you may have some panic attacks. I really feel you're suffering. I think you should go talk to someone about this suffering and this pain. Not, I, you know, because if, if we look at the, the, the drug and alcohol use as a, as a way of managing the pain, Right. 
that some ways maybe is not the best way to go into it. Um, you know, rather better to say, uh, yeah, I feel for your pain. That seems much more empathic to somebody. Now, the problem is in the field, the field's been divided between those in mental health and those in addiction. And some addiction people, mental health people say, well, you're drinking too much, you gotta go to addiction. Some addiction people say, look, I mean, you've got all this trauma, I can't treat you. So that may be a problem accessing some treatment that will work, but the world's getting better, so we can hope for that. Um, but yeah, I would say, talk about the pain, don't talk about the drinking alcohol. Unless, unless something dramatic happens at work, right? There's some incredibly embarrassing thing that you go, guy, you know, I think, I, I love you, but you I, you almost got fired for that one. I, I think you're giving us a signal that this is really out of control for you. And, you know, and then in that case, I would, I would go for the alcohol. And I've had patients who did really embarrassing things at parties. Oh, wait, you got a story? No. <laughs> you do have a story. <laughs> you have hundreds of stories. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to show it. put it that way. Well, Scott, that's all right. I like how bright red you're turning, though. I think that's lovely. And I'm so grateful. I learned a lot today in the conversation, especially about identity as it relates to addiction. And I want to thank you for being a guest today. We're going to put all of your good stuff in the show notes. The Corporate Drinker Podcast is a special series brought to you by Punk Rock HR. If you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite streaming platform and leave a five-star rating and a review. You can also head on over to punkrockhr.com for news, information, show notes, and all the good stuff related to Corporate Drinker. This episode was expertly produced and edited by my friends at Emerald City Productions with special help from Danny and Michael. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. We'll catch you next time on the Corporate Drinker Podcast.